Hi, everybody. And welcome to That's Life, the show where if you found a pink Nike sneaker floating in the East River on Memorial Day weekend, chances are it's ours. Good afternoon, folks, and thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 2 p.m. as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home of the Nachum Siegel Network. On the beautiful Lower East Side, I am joined by my handy-dandy partner, David. What's up, David? How's it going? Thank God everything is going just fine. We have a packed show today. We have three guests. What? What is that? Echo. Did you hear that? That was weird. Um, great. Now you're hearing me in Echo. If you think that's uh, just the sound in your head, no, no, that's real life. We have three guests today. We Again, what is that? Is it that mic picking me up? What's going on? That's much better. Okay. Um Let's try that one again. Three guests today lined up. We have a packed show. We have to tell you about the parade this Sunday. So let's get to the nitty-gritty. If you're a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. And if you are a returning listener, thanks, as always, for making us part of your day. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, do what listener Richard Aaron does. Friend me on Facebook. Send me a message on Facebook. Thank you, Richard. I took care of that, um, that info you asked about. So hopefully you'll be getting it in the mail soon. You can also send me an invite on LinkedIn. Shoot me an email, miriam at nachumsegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show. I am not being rude. I'm just being honest, and I'll make sure to get back to you afterwards. Please also follow us on Twitter, NachumSiegelNet, all one word. Let's take care of some business. Today's national holiday, national holiday, I should say. It is Loomis Day. Yep, I know, David, you've given me strange looks over the last six months, but that one's up there, i got to be honest. Yes, Loomis, L-O-O-M-I-S. There's a Loomis, California. I know, why would you know what it is? Because it's pretty it's pretty strange. So here, according to the web, I'm going to read this to you because, frankly, I didn't bother to memorize it. Less than 150 years ago, wireless communication was just the wild dream of New York-born dentist Malin Loomis, L-O-O-M-I-S, whose accomplishments are celebrated on this zany holiday because it was believed that he thought he could harness the upper atmosphere's electrical currents to successfully transfer telegraph messages without wire. Otherwise known as, he is possibly credited as discovering wireless technology. Oh, interesting. I will not go through the the um, experiment that he used in order to figure out if he could actually harness, harness these electrical currents, but he did then petition the government um, to continue his research. They decided not to fund Loomis's research, but he did not give up on the idea. In the late 1870s, there were actually rumors he was working on a wireless telephone in the late 1870s. So he might have been a freak but ahead of his time, but we definitely appreciate his ingenuity Today, also tomorrow is National Heat Awareness Day, so if you think it's getting hot, consider yourself aware. Crazy follows me everywhere, but before we do that, one second, I got to get my fortune cookie. Everybody wait, I'm on my way back. I got my fortune cookie. You know what that noise means? What does the fortune cookie say? We've had a lot of good luck recently with these fortune cookies. They've been very sorry. I know my dad's gonna like this joke. They've been very fortunate. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. Okay, without making a mess because I just vacuumed. Yes, I do vacuum here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Here we go. Oh, that's nice. See, I'm telling you, whatever batch we have here of these fortune cookies, they're amazing. Organize your life around your dreams and watch them come true. That's nice, right? All right, we'll play these numbers. 9, 51, 15, 6, 1, and 12. I like this one. By the way, if you notice, I've been sticking them up around the studio. 
I'm waiting for ZK to come in and say, what are you doing here? But um, until he comes in um, and takes them down, I should say, I'm going to keep sticking them up. Anyway, Crazy follows me everywhere this week. It did follow me on Memorial Day to the bagel store. Um, for those of you who are aware, those are the people otherwise who listen, uh, who live with me, I should say. Nassau County has some pictures of the back of my truck as I have possibly not stopped completely at a red light before making the right turn. So um, originally there was only one photograph and then there was two. And it seems that there is accompanying video of me not stopping completely at these red lights, which has, thank God, served for humorous moments at the Wallach household because otherwise they could just be served with angry moments at the Wallach household. But thank you, Stephen Wallach, for taking it in stride because, well, married to me, that's probably the least that you have to put up with. Anyway, on Memorial Day, I'm sitting in the bagel store. I'm doing work. I promise you there's a segue, David. I'm sitting in the bagel store doing work. And what happens? I'm totally minding my own business. I have my earbuds in. I'm just doing work. All of a sudden, a cop walks in. And I'm like, okay, I'm not paying attention. The cop's allowed to walk into the bagel store. And he looks at the owner, and the owner points at me. I'm like, okay, I, I've been sitting here for an hour. I can't figure out what I would have done. My car's parked legally. I, thought, I can't figure it out. And he looks at me. The officer comes over and he looks at me and goes, is that your vehicle? I'm like, yes. And all of a sudden, I, I took a deep breath, and I said, the Memorial Day parade is coming down this block, isn't it? He said, yeah, and if you don't want your car to sit here for the next hour and a half, you should move it in the next 10 minutes. I said, oh, okay, that's totally fine. And he looks at me. I said, well, I was just trying to figure out what I could have done wrong in the last hour of me sitting here in my car parked legally. I said, because you, I said, because Nassau County also already has pictures of the back of my truck and video. And he says to me, yes, we watch it all the time at the precinct. It's really quite funny. Now, and I burst out into laughter. Clearly, he was making a joke also, but I, I think I turned completely gray in about five minutes. Anyway, you are listening to That's Life here on the Nahum Siegel Network. I'd like to introduce my first guest who wrote a book who authored a book, which I have to tell you, I don't remember reading something this interesting since I finished graduate school the second time. The first time, I didn't, I'm didn't. i not sure what I read that was so interesting, but the second time was really quite fascinating. Dr. Eric Goldman is an adjunct professor, adjunct associate professor of, of cinema at Yeshiva University and at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. He is a film educator who lectures on Yiddish, Israeli, and Jewish cinema, and is founder and president of Ergo Media, a video publishing company specializing in Jewish film. He's also the former director of the Jewish Media Service, and he's the author of Visions, Images, and Dreams, Yiddish Film, Past and Present. Good good afternoon, Dr. Goldman. Hi. How are you? Very good, thanks. <laughs> thanks for joining us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. My I, pleasure. I, I, really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the book. I want to so know, much. I want to know how much you enjoyed writing it. Uh, it took a lot of work, but I really did enjoy it. There, there seemed to have been, there's something about the tenor um, or the style of writing in this book, which to me, even though it is definitely an academic piece, showed a lot of enjoyment and a lot of fun. Like there was some kinds of, I, I, I liked, by the way, in your forward, how you say that you took off time and went on writing, writing vacations, so to speak, and you thanked your family for their patience. But there's a lot of fun in this. Well, I, I wanted it to be fun. I mean, movies uh, are educational, but they're right. also fun. And and too often um, there's a book written for an academic audience, and it just is too cerebral. You want to, you know, movies are something that are enjoyable, and I wanted this to reach as broad an audience as possible. So explain to our audience who are possibly not familiar with the book, nor have they seen all the advertisements about your various speaking engagements and your book tour, which hopefully we'll talk about at the end of the segment. But tell everybody what your premise is and how you chose these films. 
Well, the premise is that if you look at a film made by Jews, and and what is what has happened over the last century is that there have been, as we know, a lot of uh, people who in, who are Jewish involved in the industry. So if you pick select films that deal with Jewish subjects, you can really learn a lot about what was happening in the Jewish community in America at that time. So if you look at a film from the 20s, it really gives you a, a good snapshot of, of American Jewish life in the 20s. If you look at something made today, even if it deals with uh, something 50 years ago, it really provides a broad understanding of of how Jews feel in America today. So you used specific films in order to trace the the um, uh, the word is not even development, but the passage of Jews or the acclimation of Jews into American society from the 1920s to through today. With your most modern feature being um, the Jacks, the um, Saffron Fire, the Jonathan Saffron Fire. What um, everything is illuminated. Exactly. Right. So it was a, a phenomenal progression of almost, you know, 80, 90 years showing this um, this progression of Jewish life and how Jews see each other and how Jews see themselves exactly. as these movies were produced by Jews. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you, you look at a film made in the 1920s and there's a very strong assimilationist message. And you look at a film today and you see great comfort on the part of Jewish movie makers in terms of how they feel as Jews, even if they're not observant. What are, and you also talk about the placement of different items and like iconic items to Jews. And it's funny because when you, whether it's a talus or, or a menorah, even like in the corner of a, of a shot in a movie, but something that Jews sitting in the theater will pick up on and will be either comforted by or warmed by, etc. But it's the equivalent today of what I would call product placement. Where Absolutely. Exactly. And and the target audience in this case is any tribe member or anybody who is, you know, look who is a Jew who is going to these movies who is looking to be engaged or connected to the movie maker. Well, look, there's no question that if a movie maker makes a film today on a Jewish subject, he or she wants us to reach as broad an audience as possible. But at the same time, there are certain we call them Coding. There's certain right. understood, you know, symbols uh, in a film that Jews will react to. M- my favorite experience was I was in Central Florida watching a Woody Allen film, and and I'm sitting there laughing, and I'm looking around me, and the audience was pretty much a non-Jewish audience, and they're not laughing when I'm laughing, <laughs> and then ten minutes later, there the the audience is going crazy, and I don't understand why right. they're laughing. So this coding, you know, we as Jews see certain things and react to them differently. That was also, for me, I mean, having nothing to do with the Jewish experience, but that was like seeing a movie like Men in Black or another movie that is like completely New York. I don't know how people outside of New York appreciate certain movies or, you know, whether it's – you could say the same thing about Seinfeld. Like Seinfeld, whether it was a particular joke because you're Jewish or or because you live in New York. Like who in Iowa is getting – nothing – no offense to the Iowans who are tuning in today, but – Who's getting that? Well, believe it or not, they're getting different things than you're getting. Okay. And, and they like are example. pushing. Uh, you're, you're, you're pushing me. You know, it's tough. But, I mean, they, they see different things. They react differently. Uh, take a Woody Allen film like, uh, you know, the film he made in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. I mean, so somebody, you know, sitting in New York looking at a film set in Barcelona is seeing very specific things whereby – a native Spaniard will will say, you know, oh yeah, you know, I, I I get the joke there. You know, he walks into that restaurant or he or he's having that food, 
and we appreciate that. But an American takes that into an American reference point, and we'll see uh, tapas, and we'll see it within a, you know through through New York eyes. There's um in, in literature. There's something, or, or I should say in literary theory, there's something called reader response theory that for our listeners, they should understand that reader response theory is when a reader approaches a book with all of their experiences and all of their language and life as they approach the book. So your experience, not you per se, Dr. Goldman, but my experience with the book might be different from yours because I'm bringing with it to the table everything that I've lived my entire life and my feelings and emotions. How much does that play into each moviegoer's experience with a film, uh, it's 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 essential. You know, it, we carry into it a, a very strong connection. So, if you look at a, a film like uh, Barry Levinson's Avalon, and the and there's a scene that opens with train uh, with the train bringing family together, um, reuniting them. One of them is a survivor, and the other is is someone who's lived in America for you know for almost sixty years. That train for a Jew might represent you know Holocaust right. deportation. And yet, it's just a train. It's just a train, <laughs> and and if anything, it's just the opposite. Right. It's reuniting family. So you know, a Jew will bring that baggage, so to speak, to to the way they interpret or see a movie or or a scene. Uh, and someone else may say, you know, well, that train represents you know someone who doesn't have that connection. It represents something entirely different. How do you? Um, how did you even start this uh, upon this research in the first place? I mean, there are plenty of people who say. Or who feel going to the movies is just pastime, like watching TV. And, and while I definitely believe that sociological studies could be done on, on Seinfeld or West Wing or, or anything else, because to me, these are actually important TV shows for, for so many different reasons. How did you come upon this theory? Well, it's, it's certainly not a new theory. But the reality is that um, I, I watch a movie and, and I see – certain things. And I said, you know what? It really provides a, a broad understanding of Jewish life at that moment. I said, you know, nobody's really dealt with this. And and I'm criticized in, in the film community. Maybe it's not academic enough. Maybe it's not intellectual enough. But I say, go to a movie, watch it, have fun, and then sit back and have a cup of coffee with friends afterwards and say, well, you know, what did he really mean there? And what was she trying to say? You know, I have to tell you, though, that sometimes I'll do a program with a filmmaker. And there I am on stage with whatever it is, number of people in the audience watching. And I'll say to the filmmaker, I noticed in such and such a scene that you did this and that. And, you know, that what were you trying to, to show there? Were you trying to show the Jewish this or the Christian that or whatever? And the filmmaker looks at me with a blank, you know, stare and says, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so that happens too. Right. But certainly what I've tried to do here is I've tried to talk with the filmmakers and get a sense from them as to whether I'm reading too much into it or or this is what they intended. And generally speaking, the response is, wow, you got it. Most people don't. Right. There is that. I mean, it's the same, again, it's the same way, um, you know, we approach literature or are these nuances planted by the author either subconsciously or overtly, overtly so that people like me who love the nitty-gritty and love the details and the hidden elements can pick up on it and say, wow, that was so genius, whether it's the choice of a character's name and the deeper meaning in that or the, 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 the particular tree and the symbolism of that kind of a tree that that person is leaning against. I mean, normal people, as I like to refer to, normal people don't look at that and say, wow, that's fascinating. But for people like you and me, 
it just adds an entire new level of enjoyment to whatever we're experiencing. There's no question. And, and oftentimes a filmmaker who, who, who likes the work of, a, of an earlier filmmaker will insert little homages, so to right. speak, just to say, you know, if you catch that, he's, you know, he's crossing Sheridan Square. And don't you remember in, in, you know, in, in Mazursky's Next Stop Greenwich Village mm-hmm. at that moment when he's crossing the square and you see this in a film made 30 years later? It's great. It's great. There, so you chose eight or was it eight or nine films? It, it's, it's basically nine films. Right. Nine films for the American Jewish story through cinema in which you um, in which you trace the the again, the progress of Jews or the vision or the way Jews see themselves in America from the 1920s. So let's start at the beginning. OK. So you started with the jazz singer. I started with the jazz singer. I mean, I could have even gone back, you know, a decade earlier with silent films. But I started with the jazz singer. It's certainly the classic uh, first film, uh, first commercial film uh, with with talking in it. Uh, and, and it's been remade so many different times that I just needed to go there, even though a lot has been written about it. And for me, I mean, the first thing I always knew about the jazz singer was the blackface. Right. But... As a Jew, I mean, there's obviously a much greater meaning to this story. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's amazing if you think about it that this first film made by Jewish movie makers, I mean, these were four Warner boys who really, if anything... Which is a great story, by the way, yeah, that you add in. Yeah, I mean, that's key. You need to right. understand why this film was made, how it was made, who made it, what, where were they Jewishly? I mean, one of the boys, two of the boys actually were Jewishly connected. The other two were very much into uh, into assimilationist mode. So you have a tension even in the making of the film. Where does the film end? When this had been a story on Broadway a year earlier, it ends with the boy coming home, singing in shul, and it's a happy ending. He's returned to his people. When it's adapted for film, two of the brothers say to the other two, wait a minute. That's not America today. I mean, who would give up, you know, a chance to be on Broadway opening night? Forget the fact that it's Kol Nidre. Who would give that up to, to sing in a shtibel on the Lower East Side? <laughs> As we say that in the Lower East Side, somebody's going to hit us <laughs> from a window. But, you know, it's, it, to me, it's also like the, the ending change. But, and I, I'm going to have to ask you to share that story about the Warner Brothers with everyone and, how, and their name change and everything. Because I, I read that. I was totally floored. But it also reminds me of Fiddler. I mean, we're not talking – Fiddler obviously does not take place in the United States, so it's not a movie that you would have referenced here. But Tevye the Dairyman, which is the book on – Shalom Aleichem's book on which the on which Fiddler is based, does not end the same way the play does. I mean, when Tevye says there is no other hand when his daughter wants to marry out, he does not reconsider in the book the same way he reconsiders in the play. And in the play and in the movie says, okay – you know, you're, and, and make some kind of conciliatory remark to, to his daughter at the end before they leave Anna Tepka. But, but here in the book, it's true. It's like the ending sticks. Shalom Aleichem wrote it the way he wanted it written. And we obviously, we, not you and I, but it was obviously adapted for Broadway and for, for the big screen so that it would appeal to larger audiences and everybody would be happy. But it also speaks to 
the the assimilationist or where Jews were when that movie came out in the United States. Yeah, and, and actually, that's a great example because I'm what a big you, fan. <laughs> what you have is you know Shlomo Lechem writing these stories, and then it's adapted by his son uh, for a play in Yiddish uh, here in New York in the in, in you know in the end of the of the second decade, and then it becomes a Yiddish movie. You know, with Marie Schwartz, and Schwartz had played this. And clearly, there is a rejection of the intermarriage. And Schwartz is speaking to the Jewish community of the 1920s and 30s and saying to them, intermarriage is taboo, just like Shom Aleichem said. But does that play when, you know, when it's made for a mass audience on Broadway and then adapted for film? Uh, with Norman, you know, for Norman, with, uh, directed by Norman Jewison. And what he does is you're right. I mean, you know, there's that moment where there's non-acceptance, but when they come to him and they say, you know, you know, give us our, your, your blessing. And, and in the play, Tevi is not prepared to do so, at least initially. Uh, but here, okay, you know, peace be with you. He says it under his breath, right. but there's peace a sense, you. you know, there's a sense that we will accept you no matter what. There is, um, I haven't haven't been able to talk about Fiddler in this kind of a reference in so long that it's exciting for me, and I I hope our listeners are enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying talking about it. But there's also, and allow me this this stretch for a second, but in the Disney's Little Mermaid, it's the same. All right, David, don't give me that look. I promise you again, there's a segue. In, the, in Disney's Little Mermaid, there is also that kind of acceptance because what happens at the end, and I'll, I'll, I'll brief you because I can't imagine you've been watching The Little Mermaid as often as I have, but um, she, Ariel, who's the mermaid, leaves her home under the sea and goes to live with the people on, on Earth, on land, who are the hated enemies of Triton and the sea world because they only want to kill the fish and eat the fish and, and kill all the... Right, so what happens at the end? King Triton turns his daughter into a human being with legs so that she can marry her beloved Prince Eric. But he, she is rejecting her tradition and rejecting everything, and he is facilitating her leaving her people instead of being true to her tradition. Now, again... Normal people are not watching Disney movies and saying that they are that they are teaching or preaching assimilation or acceptance. But as an Orthodox Jew watching this, all you know, there's a part of me that's saying, um, think about that message. It is a much bigger message than everybody lives happily ever after. Yeah, I mean, you you hit it right. You know, that's 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 that's. that's, I'm happy you're not looking at me like I'm crazy. By the way, (laughs) no, that's it. That's it. I mean, this is a broad message for a broad American and world audience. You know, come, join everyone, and, yeah, you may have to make some compromises. You may have to assimilate, and, and that's a strong message. And, and the, the interesting piece of what's happening today in movies is that message still is there, but you have such a strong Jewish comfort level right. that, yeah, you may assimilate or you may be with other people, but you're going to be a strong Jew no matter what. And and we may have problems with that because there is that assimilationist message. But on the other hand, we're saying we're seeing Jewish movie makers say, "I'm not going to be giving up my Jewishness, even if I do have to assimilate in in, uh, in other ways." Right. Jewish characters today, whether it's in cinema, whether it's in TV, or whatever it is, are not out of place. They are very much in place. They are very much just another character. It's not the equivalent of you know, a, a homosexual character coming out, so to speak, or being that token character. 
Like having two Jews on staff in whatever film it is or on screen is not abnormal anymore. It's just the way it is. Yeah, it's not even abnormal to have an, an Orthodox Jew. Right. In, in, I mean, that was sort of, you know, um, impossible to see. I remember when you saw a kippah on a, on, on a police uh, series, uh, you know, what was it, 15, 20 years ago, people were aghast. Right. Today, it's it's accepted. When Yeshiva University is mentioned in the second episode of West Wing in season one, okay, this is not, I know, there's a lot of useless information up here. But again, <laughs> there is, that's also not crazy. Yeah. It's not crazy because there has been, it's not, and I wouldn't say, and you can either, I mean, you can feel free to disagree with me, but it's not an assimilation, it's an integration, and it's a healthy integration. Yes. Well, it, it's an integration, but, you know, again, there are still the issues of what happens when there's, you know, the, the falling in love, you know, right. that still remains problematic here. And when, the, and in the end of the jazz singer, when he, when he goes to the Bima and he sings Kol Nidre and he takes his father's place, but then in the last scenes we see him performing. Back there, you know, he's back on stage singing Mami to his, uh, uh, to his mother in the front row and, and, and whoever it is, he's the, the shamus or the president of the shul sitting next to her. And everybody lives happily ever after. You can uh, have your cake and eat it too. Exactly. So what happens in the in 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 the final film? Just to spread it out, because I mean, we could talk about Barbara Streisand for another entire episode of here at That's Life. But what about the the last movie? How do we see um, a different progression? Again, the last movie, which you discuss, is everything is illuminated. Right. Um, and you feature a conversation with Lev Schreiber. Who, by the way, we, we're going to have to talk about privately. But um, oh, when the mics are off. But tell me how the the, the message changes from the, over this 80 year span, from where we left the jazz singer to we have everything is illuminated. I mean, this is you know the story written by you know it's the story of a Jewish kid looking for identity. Something's missing from his past. I mean, it's 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 Jewish life. You know, what do we do? We we connect with our past. It's so much a part of who we are. And this is a kid whose grandfather failed to share with him his experience during the war. And and it leaves a void. So what happens? The boy goes back to Europe to try and fill in the pieces. And and this is this is the story for today for a lot of young people. I mean, you know, I, I teach kids and they tell me, you know, I teach at Stern and, and, and the young women say to me, you know, my grandparent is a survivor of the Holocaust and he never shared anything with mm. his children. But he's now sharing with me because I'm asking the questions and there's uh, today there, there's, there's the ability to do that. And that's what Everything is Illuminated is about. And, and what, what Jonathan Safran Foer did and what Liev Schreiber does in the film is they fictionalize um, filling in that piece because when there's nothing there, you often create uh, something to fill in the void just to continue that connection, that connection with the Jewish past. I think also there's a um, there's some kind of almost an element of normal to that story in that, as you were mentioning, is that survivors couldn't talk to their kids, but they can talk to the grandchildren. Why do you think that is? I, you know, I think there was a sense that they needed to protect the children. They didn't want to give them nightmares. And today there's so much more uh, of an understanding of what the Shoah was um, that the grandchildren, it, it's part of their education. Uh, I went to a day school and, and I was sitting next to a kid who was a child of survivors. I didn't know what the Holocaust was. I went to a Jewish day school mm. and I wasn't taught what the Shoah was. 
and and there sitting next to me was a kid whose mother had survived. That's not the case today. It's 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 even for a public school kid, it's integrated into their education. I told somebody um, semi recently that the first time I ever saw numbers on anyone's arm, I was married. I was married, and um, my mother being. An art historian and a Jewish historian has said that anyone who does not dig deep, who, anyone who says that they didn't have any family who died during the Holocaust has just not dug deep enough. That's my, my mother will be very impressed that I could quote her also during this episode. But, um, so for me to say we didn't have any relatives, I mean, there was Yom HaShoah and everyone came in with their stories of their grandparents and had artifacts, etc. And I, I'm not complaining. Thank God I had nothing. But, um, so, uh, so I, I understand that gap. I understand that gap because Yom HaShoah was about listening to other people's stories. We didn't have stories in my home. And when you wrote about, um, when you wrote in the book about how the Holocaust was then began, when it started to be represented and in movies, in films, and how movies were being used to, as vehicles against anti-Semitism, it didn't even occur to me that this was, that it was Hollywood almost putting out its own propaganda in terms of getting a message to the public until you put it in print. And the Jewish community early on was afraid of that message because they were afraid of bringing too much attention to themselves. There was a, a great fear in, in the Jewish community in the 30s and the 40s. Anti-Semitism, it's hard to believe that after World War II, anti-Semitism was, was actually just as bad as it was before World War II. And, and these movies that were made to combat anti-Semitism really helped quite a bit. And, for example, like which movies? Gentleman's Agreement made in 1947. Right. A Jewish movie maker would not touch it. It was taboo because they didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to draw attention to themselves. So who makes it? Daryl F. Zanuck, the only head of a major studio at the time who's not Jewish. Who's so gutsy. He's gutsy. He's courageous. And, and the Jews are frightened. Right. And, and, and maybe rightly so. Do they, um, do they push back? Do they comment? Do they say, we're not ready for this? Oh, absolutely. They, they put pressure on him, uh, incredible pressure. They threatened, you know, we control the theaters in America. I mean, it wasn't totally true, but they did have a lot of we control. We began to believe our own hype. Uh, we did, and they <laughs> said to Zanuck, you know, make your film, but you'll never get it shown in any theater in America. And what happens, finally, you know, everyone realizes that it's good for the Jews. It's good for America. And the film wins the uh, Academy, Academy Award, Award for Best Motion Picture of the Year. If that was, a, I, that was <clears throat> I mean, that was a, a story I had never heard of. Oh, but I have to ask you to tell the story about the Warner Brothers. Yeah, I mean, what, what you had is, is, interestingly, you had four brothers, two of whom were Jewishly connected. And but the they other, came over. The father came the over. The father came over with one of, with, with, with a son and, 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 and a daughter and, and they, you know, they were bicycle makers. They were all kinds of things, very much like all of the moguls in Hollywood. They came from other industries. And and what happened with the jazz singer was this happened to be something that they had purchased the rights to have. And the fact that the story about a Jewish boy returning to a shul becomes the first film with talking in it and, and the first major sound picture, 1927, is absolutely amazing. And Pop Warner, you know, the, the, the father turns to them and says, you know, I'm a big Yossela Rosenblatt fan. <laughs> I love cantorial music. Can't you figure out a way of, of inserting the chazen, the, you know, the great cantor right. Rosenblatt into this picture? And, and he works out a way to, to include him in the film. So here you have the jazz singer, this film that's going out to the masses and smack in the middle, you have 
Cantor Yossela Rosenblatt singing a, a Yortzeit lead, a, a Yortzeit song. Well, it's, it's ironic that you mention um, Cantor Rosenblatt because it's a huge memorial concert this Sunday. So that's actually a perfect timing, perfect product placement by you, Dr. <laughs> Goldman. Dr. Goldman is an adjunct associate pr- professor of cinema at YU and JTS in New York City. He is the author of The American Jewish Story Through Cinema, and he is on a massive book tour right now. I, 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 I honestly, I mean, the emails I've been getting both from my mom and from other places. My mother's also on faculty at JTS, so she's shepping particular nachas that you're joining me on the air today. Tell me where people can listen more and hear more. Where are you going to be next? Well, I, I am going to be speaking uh, at a Brandeis alumni event uh, on June 12th uh, in the city of Brandeis House. And then in the fall, I'll be uh, doing a, a tour you know, pretty much across the country. And um, I'll be in Montreal this, uh, this Sunday at 2 o'clock doing a book signing uh, at Chapters Bookstore. Oh, that's fun. Yep. Where um, have your students been in, um, been reading the book? Uh, Did you, know, you assign the book to your students? You know, the, the, question. <laughs> the book only came out in April, and you know, a professor has to be very careful. Right. So it, it's on the syllabus, but I, I sort of made very quiet mention of it. Oh well, I would definitely have made this mandatory reading <laughs> if I was you. But let me ask you one more question because <clears> we are running out of time, David. You got to keep track on me because I don't want to. Oh, all right, because I don't want to go into Randy's slot. Um, but let me ask you about product placement, going back to that. We talked about coding. What are some of the more familiar or more classic items that make their way into films that you've seen between the 20s and, and more modern films today? Well, I mean, you know, it's the menorah. I mean, it's, it's almost – always the menorah? It's, it's awful. I mean, I have to tell – I really <laughs> – I think it's awful because sometimes you just see it placed there to make a statement. And, and it, it, it's often not the right statement being made. You know, this house is a Jewish house, so in the corner you see the menorah. Um, filmmakers are, are doing better, but sometimes they really don't care. Uh, it depends on the filmmaker. There's the, a classic story of, um, uh, of the Ben Stiller film where they're, they're in a shul and, and, and everyone's supposed to be standing at a certain moment. But really, if you look at the tefillah, they're supposed to be sitting. Oh, so one of the that's bad. Well, it's typical, unfortunately. They they oh. often will bring in a Jewish expert, and then you know, and then the Jewish experts consulted and not listened to. It so happens a friend of mine who is a rabbi was was an extra because he loves doing this stuff. He walked over to the assistant director and said, "You know, you've got this backwards." And the assistant director said, "Well, too bad. That's the way we're doing it." Oh. So. You do see menorahs, you do see, you know, uh, and, and it, it, oftentimes it's, you know, it is a Hanukkah or it, or it's a seven, you know, it's seven arm menorah. Um, every once in a while there'll be a talis, there'll be a kippah. Uh, some of it's really terrific and some of it's over, overdone. And you know what? One more, one more thing because, <laughs> because I really want to ask you about Israel and the placement of Israel and the discussion of Israel. Pre-1948, post-1948, how does Hollywood address the the the, um, the birth of the state of Israel? I mean, you do mention Exodus and Leon Uris and um, Ari ben Kanan in the book as being this unbelievable figure. But I don't know that I appreciated just how huge this was until you wrote about it. Yeah, I mean, Exodus was huge. And, and again, it's a situation where the Jewish movie makers in Hollywood didn't want to make it. And Leon Uris actually wrote this as a screenplay. 
I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. And then nobody wanted to make the film. So he turned it into a novel, becomes a big bestseller. And Otto Preminger, in his own sort of sly way, manages to pull it away and to take ownership of it and finally make, you know, this magnificent film. It is the introduction of the new Jew. It's, 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 you know, uh, this is not mine, uh, my idea. This is something, you know, that another film scholar has mentioned. But Paul Newman becomes mm. the representative of the new Jew. And, and, and it's That's an nice. exciting moment. It really is. Not only that, he's Hollywood looking. Right. You know, oh, so you have blonde, a Jewish character. Eyes. You know, there he is in his, in his khakis, you know, right. smacking the ship, suntan. You know, he's beautiful. And that really is, is a major shift, uh, in, in the way Jews are portrayed. You do have some films about Israel that are made in the early 50s. They're made by independent studios. They're barely seen. But, you know, uh, Exodus certainly changes this. Uh, then uh, it's interesting. In 1966, there was a movie called Tobruk, where of all groups, you know, it's the Palestinian platoon that are chosen to blow up the German munitions uh, dump in this World War II film. And of course, there's Kirk Douglas in Cast the Giant mm. Shadow, um, where you know you have right. a, a beautiful film about the creation of the birth, uh, uh, creation of the state of Israel. Unfortunately, uh, after that. Uh, Dealing with Israel has become problematic. Steven Spielberg got himself into a lot of trouble when he made uh, Munich. Right. Uh, People said, you know, it's too pro-Palestinian. It's not strongly. And here you have Steven Spielberg, who was one of the most pro-Israeli filmmakers around, being criticized. So movie makers have have sort of shifted. They're, they're, They're not dealing with Israel the way they used to. Well, Dr. Goldman, this was an unbelievable conversation, and I... I honestly, I, I love the book, The American Jewish Story Through Cinema. I highly recommend it. It's put out by University of Texas Press. It's available on Amazon. And um, I, I hope you'll come back and visit us again. I hope you're putting out another book. Well, uh, We're taking a break? Uh, well, no, <laughs> beginning the research now. Excellent. Dr. Goldman, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me join you. My pleasure. You're listening to That's Live here on the Nahum Siegel Network. I am Miriam Wallach, and I am joined by my next guest. Kevin Conan from Petopia joins us on the air right now to give us an update or I should say a little bit of insight into this Sunday's second annual falafel ball eating contest. As people know, this Sunday is the Celebrate Israel Parade, so there is a lot of excitement going on in New York City, Jewish-related, shall we say, between the concert in the park, the soccer match at at night, the parade during the day, and the falafel ball eating contest. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Miriam. How are you? Thank God. I am well. So tell me how this started. So uh, last year we decided to do something a little bit different after the parade. Um, There were a lot of people already in New York City, and we were trying to find something fun for people to do after the parade. And we knew Nathan's as a hot dog eating contest on July 4th, so we thought we'd do a falafel bowl eating contest after the Israeli Day Parade. Now, is this a real, like, heavy-duty competition like Joey Chestnut Nathan's hot dog thing, or it's people like me? It's a mix of both. Um, last year was the first year we did it, and there were some amateurs who just walked in because they thought it would be fun, and there were people who go to uh, as many food eating contests as they could find. And train for it. And train for it. The person who won last year actually was one of the people who goes to all these contests. Are you serious? Yes. Who won last year? Uh, Ron Blatt. And what did he? how many did he eat? Yeah, um, he ate a lot of I can't remember the number. It was probably 25. Uh, in the last round, I think it was 25. I think it was two rounds. Okay, so tell me how the rounds work, because I have told Nahum that I could compete, and he, 
obviously laughed at me because no, most normal people would. And he said that, you know, this is a professional eating competition that people actually train for. And I said, I'm like, I remember how many I ate the morning of the marathon when Petopia came and I was snapping pictures of these falafel balls being made at FMU and eating them as they came out of the fryer. So I really have a feeling I have game here. But tell me how the competition works. So for the first uh, three minutes, they will, everybody will have 20 falafel balls, and whoever, whoever finishes the most in the first three minutes, the first three move on to the final round. And then they'd have to do that again. And how many people made it to the final round last year? We only take three in the final round. Oh, just you only take three. Placing. Got it. Oh, in terms of placing. So the first okay. three to, either first three to, to finish the 20, or the first whoever finishes the most gets into the final round. And then they... They do it again for placing. Got it. Second place and second and third place. Got it. And how many people competed in the first round last year? I need to know what my odds are, Kevin. Well, we're going to accept ten people. Oh. So I is there a qualifying round? I mean, do I have to eat? There's no qualifying round. We're just going to pick random ten people. If you want one of those ten spots, it's yours. Oh, I feel a challenge. <laughs> I feel a challenge coming on. You know who we need? If there's a challenge, we need Ellie Hagler. Because I'm sure Ellie Hagler would say that he is the best falafel ball eating uh, champion out there. I'm sure that because there's nothing Ellie Hagler claims he cannot do better than anyone else. Um, tell me what the prizes were last year. Last year, I, I think the first prize was a falafel every week, a falafel sandwich every week. And I believe that was the first prize. That was the first prize. You know, every time I walk by Petopia, it looks to me like the place is completely hopping. It's on 37th and Broadway, right? Correct. Right off the corner of 30, uh, Broadway on 37th Street. It's um, it's constantly booming during lunchtime. Thank God. It's a very busy, it's a great location, and it's a very uh, very busy place. It's, uh, it's great food, a great concept, and people seem to keep on coming in. Are there different flavors of falafel balls? Because, you know, that's a big thing. Right, right now we only make one falafel ball. It's a very good falafel ball, and we like to just keep one, one falafel ball with different toppings. Okay, so what's about? So, oh, so that's another question I didn't get to ask you, Kevin. Tell me about the the what has to be eaten with the falafel ball. So for the contest, it's just falafel balls. Okay, can you dip it in tahina to help it go down? You could use tahina if you like. Oh, there are a lot of rules, Kevin. There are a lot of rules. So you have – have you been contacted, by the way, by other professional eaters this year? Um, I, didn't, I didn't check anyone's references who signed <laughs> up so far. How many people do you have signed up? I think we have – so far we have like 30 people that we got to choose from. You have 30 people already? What are you going to do with all the walk-offs? Or the walk-ins, I should say. Uh, we're not going to take walk-ins, but anyone who signs up, we're going to send them a coupon. Oh, okay. All right, that's nice. And there are, and let's go through the prizes for this year in case people want to sign up. So the first prize this year is an iPod Mini. My sorry, an iPad Mini. That's a pretty big prize. That's a nice first prize this year. Yeah. Second prize is two hundred dollars in Pitopia gift card. Okay. And third prize is one hundred dollar Pitopia gift card. That's fantastic. You also, by the way, are the proprietor of Edenwalk, correct? Correct. So tell everybody where Eden Walk is located because we have you are a, a phenomenal supporter of JM the AM and all of our programming here at Nahum Siegel Network, um, and we have eaten plenty of meals <laughs> from Eden Walk sent down to us from 34th Street. Thank you very Street. much. We're on 34th Street, 43 East 34th Street, right off the corner of Madison Avenue. Right near Stern College. Right across the street from the dorm. Yeah, it's it's pretty fantastic. So, are you expecting a lot of press, by the way, on Sunday? 
Um, you know, the press is hit or miss. Last year, one one like uh, blogger showed up and wrote about it, but um, we uh, we we hope to get a write up in the Yudio Haranot. Oh, Yudio Haranot is um is uh, is covering the event. They say they will be there. That's fantastic. What time does it start, by the way? It starts at five o'clock. And how long did it take last year? It, uh, by five thirty, it should be finished. By five thirty, it should be finished. Okay, so the second annual falafel ball eating contest this. Sunday at Petopia starts at 5 o'clock, 1369 Broadway. That's 37th Street and Broadway. The first prize, folks, first pride, prize is an iPad mini. How many do you think I need? What's the, I have to best 25 falafel balls for the winner for last year in order to come in first? If you finish 40 falafel balls in the two rounds, you'll come in first. Nice. All right, I have some work to do between now and Sunday. And everyone just has to go on to Facebook uh, and Petopia USA and sign up. Oh, that's how you sign up through the Facebook page. That's how page? you sign up. There's a little button on Petopia's Facebook page. You got it. All right, so we're gonna we're falafel gonna, sign up. Falafel sign up on the Petopia Facebook page. We're all gonna head over and do that. Kevin Conan, thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to hopefully seeing you on Sunday. If I do not humiliate my family during the parade, I will please God do it at the falafel ball eating contest. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Pleasure. You too. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. C. Landsbaum from Soul Farm joins me on the air. They are headlining the uh, Celebrate Israel Parade this Sunday on Fifth Avenue. C. and Noah are friends here of everyone at That's Life and the Nachum Siegel Network. Hello, C. Hi. How are you guys doing? We are doing great. Thanks so much for joining us. We are looking forward to this Sunday. You guys were rocking last year. Thank you so much. Thank you. So you're going to be – tell me, tell everybody where you're going to be located this year. Um, I believe – I believe that um, we're going to be, uh, you know, I actually don't know exactly where. Somewhere on Fifth Avenue between uh, maybe 60th, something like that. Got it. Okay. Well, if you're if you're if you're walking up Sixth, if you're walking up Fifth Avenue and you hear awesome sound coming from one particular corner, chances are it's Soul Farm. You guys have been crazy busy on a on a, on a tour, correct? Yes. Uh, well, we've been touring nonstop around the country and it's been great a lot of a lot of fun times good music tell us what you've been up to what what you got going on well we're just constantly we're touring behind our latest cd which is the blue and white cd so we've just been hitting we, we play a lot in cleveland pittsburgh um we were we did a week in israel and um we're heading out to to california this coming week and um you know, just wherever we can get a gig, that's where we are. That's that. That sounds like <laughs> sounds like a true musician. You uh, you've yes. been headlining the parade for a number of years. Yes, We're, we've been very fortunate. Um, one of the main uh, event uh, coordinators, Peter Coleman, just uh, loves us, and uh, I'm very close to him, and um, he gives us some great spots. And usually, we also get on to uh, the. Fox Good Day New York TV show, which I right. believe we're going to be on this Friday. Oh, really? Well, That's great. Yeah. So you'll be on there tomorrow morning. That's exciting. Yeah, I remember oh, last year. Morning. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I remember last year when uh, when you guys were on. It was a thrill. I mean, it's a thrill to see you guys in person and play and perform either at a concert venue or even at the parade. But there was something really exciting about seeing you guys on TV. I know. It's exciting for us, too. I mean, especially that kind of, uh, you know, exposure, exposure is, is awesome. Right. 
Right. And um, so the parade, the feedback from parade organizers is always great. And I imagine that you get plenty of fans who come by where you are and just are longtime listeners. Yes, we do. And it, it's just like a little uh, street party for us because it's kind of amazing like that you can be – they set us up on Fifth Avenue and uh, it's like ours for like three hours. You know, it's, it's just like uh, – and we're just jamming in the street. It's like – it's amazing. It's an amazing time for us. Yeah, last year the weather held – and yes. <laughs> and this year, see, it sounds like you and I are going to uh, endure some humid, hot, heat and humidity. Oh, yeah, I'll be wearing my bathing suit, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize it was that kind of party. I'll be pool with me, too, you know. <laughs> That's going to make for hey, a... we're stars, we're stars, what did you say? <laughs> exactly, you can do whatever you want. It's totally yeah. fine. It's going to, yeah, you and your uh, boogie board are going to provide a great visual um, as the uh, they're broadcasting on TV right in front of you, so it's going to be fine. <laughs> Yeah, well, I have, I have my full surfboard I'm bringing with me. <laughs> uh, I was about to say, I would be the loser yeah. with the boogie board. That's fine. <laughs> what, what, um, tell me some of the cuts that you're looking forward to playing this Sunday. Some of the... Um, some of the tracks. Well, we're, we, I'm actually in the process. I'm going to see if we finish it up today. We actually wrote a song for the parade called Walk With Me. So um, we're, we're really looking forward to performing that. Really? Um, when did, you guys sit, when did you guys sit down to do that between your schedule? It's pretty rough, but uh, um, we were asked once again by the event planner if we would write something, and uh, I got together with uh, a songwriter named Oran Eldad and also my good friend from Moshav, um, David Swirsky, and we wrote something. And actually today we're going to see if, how it comes out with Soul Farm performing it, so we have a rehearsal today. Nice. And, um, are you playing Great it? Are, are you playing it on Good Day New York on Friday morning? Depending how it sounds today in rehearsal, we very well may do that. Wow, that's great. That's that yep. is great. By the way, I didn't introduce you as Grammy Award-winning artist C. Lansbaum. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it doesn't get old, does it? No, no. <laughs> Just trying to win another one, though. <laughs> well, you know what? Who knows? This might be it. Anyway. You know. See, we are looking forward to seeing you on Fox this Friday and seeing you guys live on Sunday. I hope you'll come by. We'll be, we will be between 67th and 68th broadcasting from the parade as we have for the last couple of years. So I hope you and Noah will come by. As you know, it is always an open invite. Yeah, we, we really um, love what you're doing, and uh, we're, we're hoping to be able to make it by. Great. Thank you so much, See, Looking forward to seeing you. Okay. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Well. Take care. Okay, bye. You've been listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am Miriam Elwal. Thank you for making us part of your day. Let's go through the lineup. Randy continues parade talk right after That's Life with something to talk about. You do not want to miss it. And if I'm right, she has a member of the Israeli soccer team that's going to be on at some point during her program as part of the Israel versus Honduras soccer uh, match that's taking place Sunday night. So there's plenty of parade info and excitement happening here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Teen Spirit follows Randy, and then Ellie and then Ellie Hagler hosts the Jewish Reaction with an OU angle on the Celebrate Israel Parade and what you can expect from the Yachad Marchers and from the members of the OU who will be present during the parade as well. Followed by Spin Class, Nachum Siegel hosts Thursday Night Extravaganza at 7 p.m., followed by 8 p.m. Stunt Show, hosted by Mark Zomik. He has a phenomenal interview. Um, I would not miss it if I were you. Book of Life with Charlie Harari at 9 p.m. Encore of Teen Spirit, and then Charlie Burnout wraps, wraps up the day 
Make sure to tune in all day long. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 as he hosts JM and the AM live here on the stream. NachumSiegel.com, JMandTheAM.org, 91.1, and 91.9 FM. Followed by Table for Two. With Naomi Nachman, don't miss Saturday Night Seagull, hosted by our one and only Avrami. And then Sunday morning, JM Sunday with Matis from 7 to 9, pre-parade show from 9 to 11, and then starting at about 11.30, yours truly, Miriam L. Wallach, along with Mark Zomick, Nachum Siegel, Mayor Ferdig, David Netkin, and the Zomick family producers will all be live at the Celebrate Israel Parade, broadcasting for about three hours, it seems. Um, it's always a fun show. It's always exciting. Let's see if Charlie Rangel walks by again this year. Curtis Sliwa, we had a lot of exciting people last year. Um, and the weather held and was nice to me. Let's see if the weather is as nice this year. My thanks to Duke, to David, to Yael Lassen, to, of course, to Avrami. And I will be leaving you today with Soul Farm's Shirulo. It is one of my favorite Soul Farm tracks. It is actually off of the Holy Ground CD. It is not off of Blue and White, but this is an oldie but goodie. It's a favorite here of mine. I look forward to seeing everyone this Sunday. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.